0: Gracious Lord, we do praise you this day. We thank you that you are with us. You are here with us even now. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would awaken our spirits to receive you, to hear your word, and to walk with you, not just in this Advent season, but throughout all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, anyone who knows me knows that waiting is not exactly my strong suit. You can ask my wife sometime what I'm like when we have somewhere to be, but it's not quite time to leave yet. Or you could ask anyone who saw me this morning about seven minutes before the service started. There tends to be a lot of pacing, and muttering, and sighing, and just sort of generally annoying behavior. perhaps perhaps some of you could relate to that a little bit. Perhaps in some of us the the fruit of patience is not quite cultivated as much as as it could be or or should be. Well, if that's the case, for people like you and me, Advent is kind of the perfect season. It's the season that makes clear that we Christians now live in the time between the times. We look back with joy to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ while also looking forward with patience and hopeful expectation for his return. And so this Advent, we're asking the question, what does it mean to live in this time, in this time between the times? How do we live as Christians between the Advents with the the joy of the Incarnation, and the hope of His return. To answer those questions, we're going to be focusing on our readings from the Gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to begin at the end, Matthew 24, where Jesus is teaching His disciples about His return. Now, before we go too far with, with the reading itself, we want to acknowledge... That this is one of the more challenging passages that we are going to read in the Gospels. In this chapter, Jesus is speaking in the same sort of way that the Old Testament prophets did. He's using highly charged and symbolic language. He's answering his disciples' questions, but also pointing them to a greater truth. And just as with the Old Testament prophets and what they had to say, there is, in Jesus' words here, what we might call a, a dual fulfillment. An immediate fulfillment of his prophecy and a future one. Just to give you an example to try to grab hold of here, we might think of Isaiah chapter 7, okay, where we see a dual fulfillment of his prophecy. In that, in that chapter the prophet Isaiah tells King Ahaz that a son will be born who will be a sign of the defeat of the king's enemies. In that case, at that time, the Assyrians. Yet, we as Christians read that same passage with a deeper understanding. When we read in Isaiah 7.14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, we know that the future and the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy was found in Jesus himself, not least of which because Matthew tells us so. Now, why does this matter for us? It's because this prophecy that Jesus proclaims here in chapter 24 has these two elements, an immediate and a future fulfillment. The chapter begins with Jesus declaring that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. He says, truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In in response to that, his disciples ask him three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age? Jesus goes about answering these questions, but he does so with both these immediate and future contexts in mind. The immediate, the destruction of the temple, and the future, his return. And we know it's immediate and future because if it were, as some have argued, that this was entirely about the second coming of Jesus, we would have a big problem. Look at verse 34. This is a verse that in the early days of my walk with Jesus caused me very high levels of anxiety. (laughs) Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now if this chapter is entirely about the coming of Jesus, his second coming then we've got a challenge here. Because last time I checked, that generation isn't walking around anymore. And last time I checked, sadly, he hasn't returned yet. And so if this is about his return, it appears Jesus got something wrong. And if Jesus got something wrong, well, now our whole understanding of who he is begins to unravel, doesn't it? So what's going on here? Well, if what he actually has in mind is an immediate fulfillment, this verse fits perfectly. A generation in the Bible is roughly 40 years. This conversation is happening around the year 33. The temple in Jerusalem, it turns out, would in fact be destroyed in one of the most horrific battles ever recorded in history. And that happened in the year seventy. The timing fits. He pronounces it in 33. A generation is roughly 40 years. The temple is destroyed in 70. It fits perfectly. Immediate and future. Why am I telling you all this? Other than, you know, it's fun. It's good Bible study stuff. Why does this matter? Well, it matters in part so that we can think well about this passage. Because when we come up against prophetic passages, we tend to respond like the disciples did. We hear it and we instantly want to know when is it going to happen and what are the signs that it is about to happen. If you think about most of the discussion around the return of Jesus today, what's the debate really about? Those questions. How? When? What are the signs? And we do that even though Jesus explicitly tells us that no one knows when he's coming back except the Father. When I was living in Ottawa for a while, there was a billboard down the street from the the church we were attending. And the billboard announced the date of Jesus' return with a phone number on the bottom that said, Call here for more information. (laughs) My friends and I would walk by and we'd joke that, well, at least we know that one day it's definitely not going to happen. But it's how we treat the return of Jesus, isn't it? And why do we do it? We do it because we want the peace and the security and the assurance that his return provides, of knowing that it will happen, but we actually want it without the faith to believe it will happen if we can point to a day and time where he is absolutely coming back, well, then we don't need faith, do we? We've got this wonderful mathematical equation that's figured it out. And admittedly, that sounds like the easier path, but I have to say, when I read the scriptures, I don't see a lot of passages that point me to walking without faith. I don't know about you, But it seems like faith is a pretty crucial role in walking with Jesus, isn't it? And yet we approach his second coming as if we can set faith aside. And so rather than pick apart this passage and treat it as a puzzle to be solved or a code to be cracked... We're actually going to now, moving forward, take these disciples' questions as as good as they are. There's nothing wrong with them, per se. But we're going to set them aside for the rest of our time. We're going to try to get into what Jesus is actually teaching about his return. We're going to walk by faith through this passage. And in doing so, we're going to talk about three different things about his return. First that it is a day of judgment. Second, that though it is a day of judgment, it is something that should bring hope, peace, and assurance to the Christian. And then lastly, we're going to talk about how we need to be ready for it. And So let's start with this first point, judgment. The return of Christ is a day of judgment. There is simply no getting around that. Jesus makes that plain through the example that he gives of Noah in the flood. When the flood came, people were going about their lives, weren't they? They were acting as if nothing was wrong at all, assuming they were safe and secure, and not heeding the warnings that were around them. Then Noah gets on the boat, and verse 39 tells us they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He then goes on to give the example of two men working in a field and one taken and one not, and two women at a mill and one taken and one not. When Christ returns, there will be those who are saved and brought into his presence to live with him in joy, and those who will not be, those who will be condemned. It is for that reason that the nations will mourn at his appearing, as verse 30 tells us, because they know their time is at an end. The nations here are those who have stood in opposition to Jesus, the rightful king of heaven and earth. He is telling us that when he comes again, he will not come as he did the first time to suffer and sacrifice himself for the sins of the world, but rather to judge the sins of the world. And for those who are separated from him, it will be a time of mourning and judgment. Now there are some who claim to teach the truth of Jesus Christ Who will say that we need not be concerned about judgment, that in the end everyone will be saved since Jesus is so loving that he will gather people to himself, all people to himself, and all will be forgiven and all will be saved. That's partially true. Most errors are partially true, just as a broken clock is right twice a day, so those who teach false things can stumble into truth on occasion. The partial truth here is that he will gather all people to himself. That will happen. But for some, that will be a time of joy. For others, it will be a time of mourning. The myth of universal salvation is truly that, make no mistake, it is a myth to be discarded with all other untruths. The Bible, the words of Jesus himself, they make it clear to us that not all will be saved. And that means where we stand with Jesus is of the utmost importance. The difference between Noah and the other people of his time was their position with God. Noah heard the Lord. He had faith and followed him. He believed the Lord over all others. The rest rejected the Lord. They chose evil over good. They chose darkness over light, and they were judged accordingly. There is no getting around it. As we profess week in and week out, Jesus shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Advent, then, is a time for us to consider anew what the promise of his return means. That living in the time between the times, it means understanding just how important he is. That he is the Savior who came in humility, and that's what what we love to talk about, right? That's, That's the Christmas part. We love that. But it also means that he will come again in power to judge both the living and the dead, and the fate of all people rests upon him. As Christians, we are called to live awaiting that, knowing that will happen. When he comes, it will be a day of judgment. Now, while judgment, admittedly, usually, not the most comfortable topic to to cover, not something we're super excited to discuss, the judgment that comes with Christ's return should not actually be a source of unease for Christians, but a source of assurance, hope, and peace. That's the second thing we're going to talk about here, assurance, hope, and peace. Why would a day of judgment bring those things to the Christian? Well, remember all that stuff I said at the beginning, all that stuff about the immediate and the future fulfillment of prophecy, okay? It matters, it's actually important. I wasn't just talking because I like to talk. In the immediate, it turns out, what Jesus said would happen, guess what? It happened. And it happened within the time frame that he gave. The temple was destroyed by the Romans within a generation of Jesus' statement. People who were walking around in his time would have still been alive to see that event occurred, including many of the apostles, John himself, for example, It turns out, shocking as it is to hear, that when Jesus says something is going to happen, it happens. So maybe then, we should take him at his word. Maybe when he tells us that he is coming again in power and glory, we should believe him. Maybe we should believe him when he tells us that he is in fact the only way to eternal life. Maybe we should believe him when he tells us that he walks with us and loves us each and every day of our lives. And maybe we should believe him when he tells us that no one knows when he's coming back. Over and over again, you read the Gospels, what do you see? He says something, and it happens. Maybe we need to believe. Trusting in Jesus, believing Him, that is where our assurance, hope, and peace should come from. That's why we should be filled with those things as we await His return. Why? Why? Because he said it will happen. And he has shown himself to be trustworthy. He has delivered on every one of his predictions and his promises. So why would we say, well, maybe not this one? One of my favorite sayings when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Jesus has shown us who he is, he's trustworthy. We should believe him. To top it all off, we should be filled with assurance, hope, and peace. Because the one who is promised, the one who is delivered, it turns out he is the king who is God himself. Beginning in verse 30, we read this. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. These words here, they recall the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days, coming on clouds and with power. In the Bible, that imagery, riding on the clouds, it is a symbol of divine power and authority, not human, divine. Further, Jesus tells us that he will send out his angels. In other words, the angels obey his commands. And then he tells us that they will gather his elect, the men, women, boys, and girls that Jesus has chosen. Friends, you look at all of these things, what do they add up to? They're only things that God can do. Jesus here is making a claim, a very powerful one, that he has divine power and authority. He is telling us that he is God himself. Now let me ask you, if that's who he is, if that's who you actually believe he is, why would you not trust him? If the fact that everything he says keeps coming true isn't enough, look at the images he uses and what they tell us. Why would we not trust God himself? Why would we allow the challenges and changes that we experience in the world around us to knock us off course and to to look for answers somehow in the world around us? And why would we ever despair and believe that there is no hope? Friends, if he's coming again, the best thing we have is hope. We have the assurance that he is coming. Friends, he is coming back. Our king is returning. And because of that, all the nations will mourn. But for Christians, we can rejoice. And as we are it, we can have assurance. Assurance because his word is true. The hope that he will return and he will do so quickly, as he defines quickly, not us. And peace. Because the one we worship and the one we wait upon is the king who is God himself. Now, with all that being true... The last thing that we want to say here this morning is that as we live, as we wait, we need to stay awake. We need to be ready. Stay awake, our Lord commands us in verse 42. Stay awake, for he is coming at a time that no one expects. And so stop looking out at the world and seeing the chaos and confusion and assuming that that must mean he's coming right now. Every generation does that. Every generation, it seems, has believed that they were the last ones. The list of people predicting such things is endless. It wasn't just that billboard. Do a Google search when you go home. You will find an unending list of people who believed they knew the exact moment that Jesus was coming back. Some, it seems, just kept updating their book year by year. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you keep going long enough, you've got to get it right eventually. <laughs> Friends, don't do that. Jesus tells us to pay attention. He tells us to look at the signs, to look at the world around us. Don't do that. Don't try to, don't spend all of your time trying to crack the code that Jesus himself said. No one could crack. If you believe him, at least believe that. But while you believe that, stay awake. Be ready for his return. For when he comes, it will seem like a day like any other. It's what he tells us here. A day when people will be marrying and giving in marriage. A day when two people will go to work and one will be saved and one won't. A day with eating and drinking and celebrating. A day of just getting by for some. And then he will come as quick and unexpected as lightning flashes from east to west. And so we must be ready. We must look for his return. We must long for it with hopeful expectation. So what else would we hope in? What else is better at hoping for the return of our king? Now hopefully, you're asking yourself, okay, you keep saying be ready, stay awake. What on earth does that mean? If it's not cracking the code, what is it? Friends, it means living the life you called you to. It means putting your faith in Jesus and following him where he leads. It means blessing and serving those you encounter. It means raising children to know Jesus. It means doing your job in a way that brings glory to Jesus, because after all, he's the one that we serve. And it means telling people about a Savior who has come once and will come again. In short, it's loving God and loving neighbor. It's living the Christian life. That's what being ready is. Live as he has called you to. As I said before, the return of our king tells us that this is all going somewhere, friends. Friends. Life is not pointless, it is not meaningless, and history is not endless. The world is going to the ends that Jesus has appointed for it. And so as Christians, as we await his return, we are called to live out what he has called us to, to live with hope and assurance and peace, and the joy of knowing that our King is coming. He has come once, just as our Father said He would. He lived perfectly, just as our Father said He would. He sacrificed Himself and then rose again, just as He said He would. And He even predicted the most cataclysmic event the Jewish world of His day could possibly imagine, when pagans desecrated and destroyed the beloved temple. All of it happened just as He said it would. Perhaps then... This season of Advent is about taking him at his word and walking in faith with him. He is coming again. And while it is right and appropriate to praise and celebrate his coming with joy, it is also appropriate to take the time this season and ask the Lord to train our hearts and mind in faith that we might stay awake living in the hopeful expectation of his return. And as we wait for him, we set about doing the work the Lord has given us to do, living with Jesus as the primary motivation of our hearts and our lives. Let us then fix our hearts and minds on him so that when he comes again, he will surely find faith upon the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.